In a world where we experience economic turmoil, grief, poverty, and crime, we are not consumed by the flames, but rather we use those flames to light our path toward a brighter future. Through our faith, we learn to receive the strength and resilience we need to survive and thrive in the midst of life's greatest challenges. So let us be like the fire that burns hot and bright, never letting the world's darkness extinguish our inner flame. Let us draw upon the unshakable resilience that comes from Jesus alone and emerge from the trials of life stronger and more resilient than ever before. It is so good to see you here this morning. Those of you who have joined us online, glad that you're with us uh, to be able to be together, to, to lift up our voices, worshiping God, and to look into his word. Uh, really, really grateful that you're here today. Uh, in January, uh, as we were going into our 21 days of prayer and fasting, I made a comment about one of the things that I'd be giving up for the 21 days is cookies. And it was kind of a ha-ha moment, but it was very, very serious that that was a sacrifice for me, uh, amongst other things. That was not the only thing, but amongst other things. After the 21 days were up, several people from our congregation gave me different batches of cookies, uh, which was wonderful. One of them was the size of a pizza. And uh, I'll just say I ate all of them, uh, and it was fantastic. About six weeks ago, I mentioned that my daughter and I were running the Austin Marathon, and the last three miles I was kind of struggling, and she motivated me with this thought of chocolate milk at the end, uh, the finish line, and we got there and there was no chocolate milk. And after that sermon, uh, three people bought me chocolate milk, and it was, <laughs> it was, it was great. I, I drank those after my long runs the next weeks. And um, three weeks ago on Easter, um, I talked about a, a Pagani utopia. Nothing. I mean, it's been three weeks. Nothing. But I want you to know I am not crushed by that. I am not destroyed by that. Because I am resilient. I can overcome these kind of adversities in life. And you can quote me on this because I spent a lot of time crafting these words. You can tweet this out but give attribution. This is something that I've always said. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So you can quote me on that one. Worked really hard. A lot of other people have quoted me on that anyway. Hey, we're in this, this series called The Resilient. And as I mentioned, there's a whole branch of psychology that talks and studies resilience. And why is it that some people can face a traumatic difficulties in life and crumble? We understand that. But other people can face the same and even worse. And they don't crumble, but they endure. In fact, some of them not only endure, but they expand their capacity and actually come out on the other side of those things stronger. Why is that? And what is this thing of resilience? I mean, we read or hear these stories of resilient people that undergo all kinds of difficulties, and they not only make it through, but they, they seem to have become bigger or better because of it, and it inspires us. I mean, when I was a little guy in the 70s, there was a book that I read called Tortured for His Faith. I don't know if any of you ever read that in the 70s, Tortured for His Faith. It was about a man named uh, Haralan Popov, and for 13 years in communist Russia, he was tortured because he would not denounce his faith in Christ. And I read that as a little boy and just was amazed by what he went through. Similar season, read a book called In the Presence of Mine Enemies, and it was about a, a man named Harold Rutledge who had spent seven years in the Hanoi uh, Hilton and, and the, the kind of uh, torture that he went through and, and how he endured through that and how he, how he prevailed through that and how he persevered and how he was resilient because of it. Last week, I talked about Admiral uh, James Stockdale, spent uh, eight years in the, in the same and the torture that he went through. 
Or maybe you've read books like The Diary of Anne Frank or The Hiding Place with Corey Tinboom and her sister Betsy. And, and to hear what they endured and how they were able to, to be resilient through that. 11 or 12 years ago, um, I read the book Unbroken, the Louis Zamperini story, the, the Torrance Tornado, this Olympic runner whose plane was shot down over the Pacific, and he and three of his, uh, of his other uh, fellow officers spent 47 days adrift in the Pacific on a life raft, dealing with hunger and starvation, dehydration, hallucination, sharks, and finally they were rescued thinking things would get better, but they were rescued by the Japanese and taken to a POW camp where Zamperini kind of somehow had this one guard, they referred to as the bird, um, Watanabe, that somehow he got his number and the kind of torture he underwent. And yet he prevailed. He came through it. He was resilient. And just recently, actually in preparation for this series, I reread the classic book, um, Man's Search for Meaning. It was originally published in 1946 by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychotherapist. He was Jewish and from Vienna and spent years not only in Auschwitz, but uh, Dachau as, as well. And he, he talked about the kind of treatment that they experienced in these concentration camps and which guys made it through and which ones didn't. And he did. And as a psychotherapist, I mean, uh, he, he was actually called upon at times to say, you know, can you help this guy out? And he said, as they would go into these concentration camps, these men would be stripped of everything. They were taken from their homes. They were taken from their families. Then they were, all of their worldly possessions were taken, all their, everything, the wedding rings and, and their clothing and everything. And then they were taken even from their identity, heads shaved so they all looked the same, names taken away and given a number, their health was taken away. And in the course of all of this, with their dignity, everything, he writes these words in Man's Search for Meaning. He said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. That is the key to resilience. Is to know that we have a choice. That is not just left to chance, but we can choose. In fact, again, psych psychologists will tell you that resilience is not so much about what you experience, but how you respond to what you experience. Never losing, as we talked about last week, never losing in faith that the end of the story will be good, that you will prevail, but also confronting the brutal facts. That's what we looked at last week. And Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, who are in their own kind of a Babylon type of experience. And he wants them to have that, to, to choose this resilient life. And this is what he writes to them in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If you read it in the context, he's talking about the end of the story. Don't lose hope. He keeps talking about no matter what else happens in this world, no matter what else happens in this life, we have the promise and the hope of the resurrection. So we can hold on to that hope, confront this, and choose to be resilient even in the midst of these difficulties. And all throughout the pages of Scripture, from cover to cover, you hear this, you see this, you see it modeled, you hear these passages that give us basically this story over and over again. In this world, the difficulties of this world, the trials, the circumstances, is that we may travail, but we will prevail. It might not always be easy. It won't always be what we choose. It's not what we want. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. But we will prevail. 
We are more than overcomers. We are conquerors. We are the resilient. Now, as I mentioned last week, that I would be sharing with you multiple definitions that I came across um, for resilience. And, and the one that, one of the ones I mentioned last week was from the American Psychological Association that said, resilience is this. It's the process and the outcome of successfully adjusting to difficult and challenging life experiences. It's that having the flexibility to adjust in times that are difficult. Another one that I read was um, from Dr. Uh, uh, Rich Hansen. He's at UC Berkeley. And he said that, that resilience is the ability, the ability to survive the worst day of your life and to thrive every day of your life. To survive the worst thing imaginable, the worst day of your life, to survive that, and then to thrive, to choose that attitude, to choose how we're going to respond to the rest of things every day of our life. So today we're going to continue on, and we've been talking about this for two weeks now, of the resilient and its wisdom from Babylon. And as I said last week, it's wisdom for Babylon, for those experiences, for those times in our life. And today I want us to look specifically at being spiritually resilient and how that's tied with our identity and seven really specific words. Now, if you were with us last week, thank you for enduring the history lesson and coming back. You're, you're amazing. Maybe you're just hoping it'll get better. I don't know. But, but I promise you, I won't go into as much history today as we did last week. And there might be a little bit of backstory, depending on how the time goes on some of these things. But I, I, I want to talk about this wisdom from Babylon. Now, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. If you want to turn there, if you have like a, a Bible that's got pages and stuff, it's about, I don't know what, uh, two-thirds of the way back in the scripture. Otherwise, just kind of dial it up on your phone or your tablet. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 1. Get you up to speed. Babylon, this town that's, and, and not just a town, but a kingdom, the, the, the Medo-Persian Babylonians, they're the reigning world, world power, and Nebuchadnezzar is the king. He is unquestionably the most powerful man on the planet at the time. And in the town of Babylon, which is by the Euphrates River, uh, there are some exiles. Between 605 B.C. and 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came to Israel and sieged Jerusalem at least three times. And in so doing, he would take people back and they would be exiled into Babylon. We, we looked at all that last week. On one of his besiegings of, of, Babylon, of, of Jerusalem, he took and stole, he plundered all of the articles from the temple for his own treasury. Now for him, they had monetary value. This was, this was, these were valuable items. For the Jewish people, the monetary value was actually quite secondary. It could be replaced. For them, it had far deeper significance and meaning. Because these were the articles that were used in the worship of Yahweh. This was their identity. These were so holy, set apart for God's purposes. And now they were plundered by this pagan king. Not only that, but he burned the temple. He tore down the walls. He burned the neighborhoods and all that we, that we looked at. And after he's taken these things from the temple, he sends one of his key guys to do more damage. We read this briefly last week. I told you we'd come back to it. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3, it will, is where we'll start. It says, Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Now, let's really quick talk about this phrase, his chief eunuch. Because some of your Bibles will say his chief official. And the word that is translated there can be translated eunuch 
or official. So some might be saying, well, so which is it? Maybe both. Maybe this man was a eunuch and he was an official because that was not uncommon in pagan kingdoms. In Jerusalem and Israel, that would be very uncommon. That would not be a good thing at all. But with the pagan kingdoms, this was very common because if a king had someone in his leadership, if that individual was a eunuch, then he doesn't have to worry at all about his harem with this guy. Not only that, but if he's a eunuch, he doesn't have a family, he doesn't have kids, and he can devote all of his time and all of his energy towards the, the biddings of the king. So I believe that this man, Ashpenaz, was a eunuch and was a chief official both. But he sent, hold on to that, that, that will come into play later on. He sent to bring some of the people back to Babylon. People of royal lineage, people who are, who are of nobility. I mean, the upper echelon, the, the, the highly educated, the, the um, I don't know, the, the ones who are wealthy, the, the, the cream of the crop, they just kind of take them off the top. And we looked at how he's talked about the royal family and the fighting men and the artisans and all those who are skilled. But there's this other group. And he says this in verse four, young men. And I'm sorry, every time I read this, YMCA comes to my mind. Young men, all right, sorry. I, I, sorry to get that stuck in your head now. I'll, I'll get it unstuck with another lyric later. Young men, these are guys who are probably between 15 to 19 years old. They're not old enough to be in the army. They're not 20 yet. But they're old enough to, to show their promise and the potential. They're like high school juniors or seniors, college freshmen is, is what we're talking about. Not just young but they're without any physical defect and they're handsome. So now you've got these guys who are chiseled and they're not difficult on the eyes. So you're getting, you're getting this picture of who he's bringing to, to Babylon. Not only that, but they're showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They're well-informed. They're quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Qualified to serve the king. You begin to see this picture of who this is. These are the guys that I hated in high school because they're everything I wasn't. In my mind, this is like Jimmy Garoppolo in high school. I hate Jimmy Garoppolo. That beautiful, rich, thick black hair. My hair was red. Those dark, powerful eyebrows. My eyebrows get bleached white in the summer. That olive complexion, one little bit of sun, I'm burnt. I'm fair complected. He has those teeth. I had braces. Those piercing eyes, not mine. I hate Jimmy Garoppolo. That, that's who these guys are. Not only that, but they're on the National Honor Society. I mean, they're the, uh, the Associated Student Body President. They're always voted most likely to succeed. That's who he's talking about here. This is the homecoming king. This is the, the captain of the football team. These are these guys. And their future would be quite predictable. Because of their nobility, they would go to the best schools in the land. They would have the best education. And not only that, because they were of nobility and royal lineage, they would probably have the nicest chariot. Unlike my 74 Volkswagen bug that I drove to school, they would have all of these opportunities. And because of that, the contacts with their family, they would be given the choicest jobs. And then they would have a wonderful wife and beautiful children and an enviable home. And they would be prominent leaders in their community. And they would die old men surrounded by grandchildren and, and, and the honor of the, whole, of the whole community. But all of that was stripped away from them. They were taken into exile. 
And this is what Ashpenaz was supposed to do with these guys. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Now, you can spin this to make it sound like an amazing opportunity for these guys. It's like being an exchange student. They had the opportunity to study abroad. I mean, a three-year fast-track program. They get to learn a new language, not just like taking Babylonian 101, 201, 301. They are in an immersion program. So not only at the end of it will they have a basic rudimentary understanding of the Babylonian language, they will not just be conversational. They will be fluent in this language. And in addition to that, they will have exposure to books and to ideas and to philosophies that otherwise they would not. You talk about a liberal arts, to be able to expand their horizon. And at the end of these three years, to be able to be like these foreign dignitaries, you can spin it to look really good, but that is not the case at all. It's like a Liam Neeson movie. They're taken. They're never going to go home. Oh, Ashpenaz, he probably singing. Let me change your lyrics from the YMCA. Relax, said the eunuch. We are programmed to receive. You can check out any time you'd like, but you can never leave. There you go. Get that one stuck in your mind. Hotel Babylonia. All right. So they're there. And here's the case with Daniel. He's probably 17 years old. He will never, ever go back to Jerusalem. Most scholars believe that he was in his 80s, maybe early 90s when he died in Babylon. He would never go home. He would never see the neighborhood he grew up in. He would never see some of his family ever again. He would never see his homeland. Again, and Nebuchadnezzar took tens of thousands of people, and of these young men, probably took hundreds of them. But there are four of them that are listed in Scripture. Or we verse six. Among these were some from Judah: Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are their names. Very important names. Now, we don't know anything about their parents, but let me just say this. Even though, even though all this happens because of the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, all these prophecies that God says, hey, if you don't get back on track, this is going to be a, an issue for you guys. God's people, while the nation as a whole has gone off the, off the rails, God has always had a remnant who is faithful to him. And let me just say that about America, regardless of whatever happens to us as a country, God will always have a remnant who is faithful to him. And maybe, just maybe, these guys, their parents, were a part of that remnant who said, I don't care what our culture does, I don't care what our nation does, I don't care what the world does, we're going to stay true to Yahweh. Because they give these guys names, and I don't think they were just kind of fun names out of the baby name book. They're very specific names that have a very specific part of their names. And I don't know if you call the back end of a name a suffix, but you look at this. Daniel and Mishael, they end with El. El was short for Elohim, which is translated in, the, in, in our scripture as God. Hananiah and Azariah end with Yah, which is like shortened for Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, those four letters, yod Hey vav Hey, the very name of God that God gave to Moses when he was on the mountain, that I am that I am. It's when it's translated all capital letters, L-O-R-D for us, Lord. These guys, their names pointed them to God, reminded them of Yahweh. 
reminded them of whose people they were. You know, over 150 times in the Old Testament scripture, you see this phrase, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your Elohim. And these four guys, and we don't know if they grew up together. We don't know if they knew each other in Jerusalem. Chances are they probably did. But their very names, their parents said, we don't ever want you to forget one thing of who God is and what he's like. Because it wasn't just, it wasn't just in general. It was very specific. Daniel, Daniel means God is my judge. You know, Elohim is my judge. Like he's the judge. He's the one that's going to set it all right. He's the one that's in control. He's the one that has last call. Hananiah means the Lord, Yahweh, shows me grace. What a promise to live in that, that, that Yahweh gives me his grace. Mishael is a rhetorical question. Who is like God? I mean, the answer is no, there's no God like ours. And Azariah, Yahweh helps. The Lord helps. What confidence to go through life. Every time their name was called, every time they introduced themselves, every time they signed a document, every time they saw the license plate on the back of their bike, they were reminded about who God is and what his character was like. That he was in control. He was sovereign. He is gracious. He is the helper. And there is none other like him. Over and over again, they are reminded about God. Now, let's push pause there for a minute. They are taken into Babylon. As we talked about last week, Jeremiah, the prophet, was not taken to Babylon. But the Lord says, I want you to write a letter to the exiles in Babylon, which we looked at last week out of Jeremiah 29. So Jeremiah writes this letter from God to the exiles, which would have included these four guys. And it's interesting, that letter that, that he, he writes has the good news, the bad news, and specific instructions. If you read it backwards, it goes in that order. Remember, the good news. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you a future, hope, you know, all that stuff. You'll call on me, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me in your whole heart. We'll have a covenant of all beings. Good news. The bad news. You're kind of in a 70-year timeout. It's going to happen, but it'll be 70 years from now. And then the very specific instructions where he writes them, while you're in Babylon, while you're in exile, Jeremiah 29, 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. This was written as a command from the Lord to the exiles, including these four guys. Remember who these four guys are. They're the who's who of the high school class. They're the good-looking ones. They're the handsome ones. They're the young, you know, athletic ones. They're the smart ones. I mean, these guys are the catch, right? These are the four finalists on The Bachelorette. All the single ladies, all the single ladies. I mean, this is going to be, I mean, no doubt these guys is like, you want to, God says we got to get married. I want that one. You know, you understand what I'm saying here. Have you ever wondered why we never hear about Mrs. Daniel? Why we never hear about Azariah's kids? Why we never hear about Mishael's family and, and that lineage? Now, scholars are not in 100% agreement on this. 
But I think there's a pretty strong case that you can build for why we never hear about their families. A hundred years earlier, Isaiah was a prophet. And he was prophesying to Hezekiah about things that would come. And it shouldn't shock us, because he was a prophet of God, that the prophecy that he gives of what would happen is so unbelievably specific and accurate a hundred years before it ever happens. This is what Isaiah said to Hezekiah. The time will surely come when everything in your palace, Hezekiah was the king, everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. That happened a hundred years later. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. That's happened now. There's this exile. All of these things that Isaiah predicted 100 years earlier happened. And then he says there's one other detail about those who will be taken away. Verse 7. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. To which you can say, but you said that could be official. Yes. But Isaiah's prophecy is all negative. For them to just be officials would not be as negative. And beside that, as he's painting this negative picture of what's going to happen, in the Jewish mind, the thought of becoming a eunuch was horrible. I'm going to tell you why. First of all, because in Deuteronomy 23, it says that any man who is a eunuch is not allowed to go into the assembly of the Lord. Can't go into the temple. Can't go into the tabernacle. It's not allowed in. And not only that, but culturally speaking, sons and daughters were a gift from the Lord. Have a full quiver, and to be a eunuch would mean that you would have none. It would be seen as a curse. This would be a horrible thing. Now take it from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. He brings in the brightest and the best and the most handsome, the good-looking guys who are young, that are going to serve in his kingdom around his harem, I think he's going to want to make sure there is no threat. I mean, the last thing he wants is these good-looking young guys to come into all of these ladies saying, your shack, my shack, into bed we go. I don't want any of that happening. And on top of that, I don't want these guys to be a temptation to my ladies. I mean, I don't want to be graphic here, but when the king had a harem, some of these gals would only get their number called once, maybe twice a year. They're probably the frustrated housewives of Babylon. They see these young guys, they're kind of being, say, wow. It makes perfect sense, unfortunately, that these guys who had this unbelievable future in Jerusalem not only lose all that in Babylon, but even worse. What it would mean for them spiritually, what it would mean for them as a family, what it would mean for them culturally. You begin to see that for Nebuchadnezzar, these guys, it was not just an education. He was even going after their identification, the very core of who they were. Going after them, changing them, making them forget or trying to. This brainwashing, this indoctrination. Back to our story, Daniel chapter 1, verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Can I just ask a question? Some of you raised in church, did any of you ever 
grow up saying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Anyone at all besides me? Okay. Yeah. Look at all these hands. We grew up saying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not Abednego. Read it. It's Abednego. How did that happen? I think I've got a, an idea. Martin Luther, the great reformer, I think he had a dyslexic moment. And he said, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're all right, Abednego. And now we, we've been saying it wrong our whole lives. It's not Abednego. This is why you come to church, to get these names straight. It's probably actually Abednego, but Abednego. Now, these aren't just nicknames. Just like these guys' parents had given them a specific name to remind them of something, Ashpenaz gives them a specific name as well. Belteshazzar, Daniel's new name, means Bel will protect his life. Bel was shortened for for Nebuchadnezzar's favorite pagan god, Marduk. Shadrach means under the command of Aku, the moon god, this foreign pagan god. Meshach, who is as Aku is. I mean, like, like he's the greatest god, Meshach would have had an answer for that one. Abednego, the servant of Nego or, or Nebo. See, he's not just giving them names. He is attacking their identification at the deepest spiritual level. Their names from Jerusalem, from Israel, from their parents, reminded them of who God is, who Yahweh is. These Babylonian names tell them about these pagan gods, these foreign gods, and all of these things. But they never, ever forgot who they truly were. They never forgot those things. Uh, let me give you one more little rabbit trail. I think I have time for this. If you fast forward in this story 60 years, which we will get to in June, I promise you. But 60 years. Daniel at this point is probably 77, 78 years old. He's been in Babylon now longer than I've been alive. He's been there for 60 years. He's served under multiple different administrations of kingdoms and, and, and kings. And, and, and for six decades, he's been there. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, we read these words. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. And then the parenthetical footnote, who was called Belteshazzar. This is 60 years they've been calling him Belteshazzar. But when he talks about what happens, he says, I'm Daniel, by the way. Oh, you can call me what you want, what you really, really want. But I'll tell you who I am, who I really, really am. You've been calling me Belteshazzar for 60 years, but I am Daniel. I have not forgotten who I am. You know, in that American Psychological Association definition of of resilience, it talks about the successful um, adapting to to changes, to difficulties, to circumstances. These guys did that. They adapted, but they did not compromise. They adapted to the culture. They adapted to their setting. They adapted to their circumstances, but they did not compromise. As we will see uh, today and in the subsequent weeks, They were convinced of who they were, and they didn't back down from that. In fact, these four would probably say, who I am, or better, whose I am, impacts how I live. My identity, not what Babylon says, not what Ashpenaz says, not what Nebuchadnezzar says, not what the culture says, but who I am and whose I am impacts how I live. They had tried to brainwash these guys out of that. They had done this relocation with them, and they would never go back home. They had done this re-education under Babylonian educational systems. They had done this complete brainwashing of of this indoctrination of of the things of Babylon. 
They had been this identification of a change of names. There may have even been emasculation, but they never betrayed the values and the convictions that they stood on ever. They continued to hold to the truth of who they were, who God was, and what he commanded. And there's seven words that Daniel says in the next verse that are really the hinge of the entire story. I mean, if he, these seven words didn't exist, I don't think we would have the rest of the book of Daniel or the story that goes with it. Such powerful, powerful words. And remember, this is from a guy who's probably 17 years old, away from his family, away from anyone who's going to hold him accountability, accountable, all kinds of temptations to do what the Babylonians do. And this 17-year-old boy says this, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. That phrase right there. Now, we'll look at the rest of it. It doesn't matter what the rest of it is. This is the choice. They can take everything away from me, but I still have a choice. And he resolves, as a 17-year-old young man, he resolves not to defile himself. Now here's the specifics on this one, but it wouldn't be the only time he would have this choice. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official, the eunuch, Ashpenaz, for permission to not defile himself this way. Why? Most likely it wasn't a kosher diet, went against the, the Levitical dietary laws. Maybe some of these things that were offered to him had been sacrificed to idols, and he didn't want to but he chose that he would not defile himself. And this is those points in our lives when we can so quickly and so easily go into justification mode, rationalization mode, the temptation, the pressure to cave, to, to compromise. Oh, come on, Daniel. It's just food. It's not a big deal. Oh, come on, Daniel. Look, all the rest of the high school guys that have been brought from Jerusalem, they're eating this. They're drinking this. We're all doing this. Come on, Daniel. What's wrong with you? You can't handle it. What's the deal, Daniel? Come on, Daniel. This isn't like you're, you're cursing against Yahweh. You're just having lunch. Come on, Daniel. Really? You're going to make this an issue? You're making a mountain out of a molehill. And really, Daniel, when you're Yahweh didn't save you from being taken into exile, you're still going to be true to his word. How easy it would be to compromise. How easy it would be to justify, to rationalize. No show of hands. Have you ever found yourself in a moment of decision, a moment of temptation, a moment of compromise, and the loudest voice in your head is your own? So easy to justify. Oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, God will forgive me. Oh, everyone does this. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And I think that that decision set the course for the rest of the book. If he would not have made that decision to not defile himself in that situation with food, how do you think he would have stood up when he was being threatened and would actually face being thrown into the lion's den years later? Because if he would have compromised here, I'll give you another quote. Another lyric. This one will get stuck in. This one actually, last night, Pastor Kip said, thanks a lot for getting that stuck in my head. 
You ready for that? There's been a load of compromising on the road to my horizon. There you go. Glenn Campbell for you. Right? Some cowboy. All right. A load of compromising on the road to my horizon. Daniel said, no. I'm not going to compromise, not even on the little things. And because of that, standing on his conviction, it allowed him, when it came down to life and death, to stand on his convictions. And not only that, but I've got to believe that his courage at that point was contagious with the other guys because it says Daniel resolved not to defile himself. It doesn't say anything about the other three guys, but then you read the following verses, and now there's four of them that have decided we're not going to eat that diet. There may have been tens or hundreds of others who said, man, we're going to keep eating this good. But there were four, and how did that happen? Maybe these three guys saw Daniel's courage and said, we're with him. Let me tell you about Phil. Phil is not his real name, but it's, the story is real. Um, I'm not using his real name because I didn't get permission to use his real name. In fact, I didn't get permission to share the story. In fact, he didn't even share the story with me. I heard it secondhand, and just to be sure, I corroborated with others. And he shared it with some close friends and family, not to try and brag, but just to, for accountability. I'll tell you about Phil. Phil's a man in our church, young man in our church. And his friend um, was getting married, and Phil was invited to be a part of the groomsmen, the wedding party. It's an honor to stand by his friend, to stand with him there as he exchanges the nuptials and the vows and, and pledges his life to this woman. Very excited about this, this wedding. And then they were going to put together, they were putting together this, this bachelor event. I mean, I know I sound so old. In my day, it was a party. Now it's these events. Okay, so putting together this bachelor event. And the, the individual in charge of putting together this bachelor event for these guys and for this incoming groom was sharing about some of the things that they were going to do. And one of the things is that they were going to take this groom uh, to a strip club. Now, Phil is a follower after Christ. And he struggled with that thought. And as he began to think about being one of his groomsmen in the bachelor event, he realized going to a strip club would dishonor God, would dishonor his wife, and would dishonor himself. It would be a compromise of his convictions and a weakening of his witness. So with great courage and no judgment or condemnation or no haughty arrogance of spirituality, he just went to the, in the man who's planning this event and just said, hey, you know, I know we've got all these things coming together. I just want you to know that when you go to the strip club, I'm just not going to participate in that part. I, I, you know, I'm not judging you. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you for me, I'm not going to participate in that. And isn't this the point where all the rationalizations and all the justifications could come in? Oh, come on, Phil. Everyone does this. This is what bachelor parties are. This is not uncommon. Come on, Phil. Everybody, we're all doing this. It's just going to be for a little bit. And we're not asking you to sleep with anyone. You're still honoring your faithful to your wife. Come on. There could be all kinds of rationalization, all kinds of justifications for this. But he said, I'm not going to participate. It wasn't judgmental. Judgmental is about you. Good judgment is about me. And then it began to get out amongst the other groomsmen. Phil's not going to go to the strip club with us. And the way I understand it, 
Two other groomsmen heard that and went to the man and said, we're with Phil. We're not going either. And I think the way I understand it is after that happened, the guy who's planning the bachelor event said, let's just not do the strip club part. Why? Because Phil knows who he is. He knows whose he is. And that impacts how he lives. The courage to stand on his convictions and to not compromise. Because of his identity. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been forgiven and saved by his blood. I've been sealed with his spirit. Why would I do this? Dishonor God, dishonor wife, and be untrue to the very convictions that I hold. There was a time when the Apostle Paul was writing to this church in Corinth, and they were faced with all kinds of temptation, and there was a temptation to compromise again in relationships. And this is what he writes to them as he reminds them of why they should not cave to these temptations, why they should not uh, compromise, why they should stay true with, courageously with their convictions. Because God says this, 2 Corinthians six eighteen, I will be a father to you, you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Listen, if we are going to thrive and if we are going to be resilient in our spirituality, we have to be unwavering in our identity and our value. Unwavering in the fact that we are the sons and daughters of the Most High God. That we have been redeemed, not by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of His Son. And we've been sealed with His Holy Spirit. That's who we are and that's whose we are. Which impacts how we live. And maybe, just maybe, when we start hearing all of these things about who we, you know, the world thinks we should be or how we should live, maybe we should ask Jesus the same question he asked the disciples. When our identity comes into question, we ask Jesus what he asked the disciples. When the world says, this is what you should do, this is who you are, when Babylon says that, we should ask Jesus the same question he asked the disciples. When our culture says, well, this is who you are and this is how you should live, we ought to ask Jesus the same question he asked the disciples. When our family and friends who say, well, this is who you ought to be and this is how you ought to live, we ought to ask Jesus the same question he asked his disciples. When the enemy comes along, the father of lies, the adversary, the accuser, and says, this is who you are, and this is how you ought to live, we ought to ask Jesus the same question he asked the disciples. What if we ask Jesus this question? But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Jesus, I hear what the enemy is saying, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? I hear what our culture is saying, but what about you, Jesus? Who do you say that I am? I know what my friends are saying, but Jesus, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, he would say. You are my son. You are my daughter. A royal priesthood. A holy nation of people belonging to God. You're more than a conqueror. You're an overcomer. You're the resilient one. You are my child. 1 John chapter 3 says, How good, great is the love the Father has lavished on us, 
that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And the reason the world, Babylon, does not know us is that it did not know him. We live in Babylon. We live in a culture and we have an enemy that will try to change our identity. But you ask Jesus, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Here's my challenge. And I know it's simple. And I know it seems a little bit just kind of like rote. But what if this week, every morning when you woke up, when you just, woke up, just said, hey, Jesus, brand new day. I know your mercies are new. But, but, but let's just get saying, I just need to make, can I hear it again? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Oh, you're my daughter. You're my son. I've given you my spirit. I live that way. That's the challenge. That will allow us to be the resilient.